Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 137 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we're going to hear from Jeremy Seal. He's the author of many books on Turkey but he's just written a book on Adnan Menderes, the first democratically elected Prime Minister in the Republic of Turkey, elected in 1950 and overthrown 10 years later in a military coup. The book is called A Coup in Turkey, A Tale of Democracy, Despotism and Vengeance in a Divided Land and it's published by Chateau and Windus, an imprint of Penguin Books. The book blends biography, history and reportage to tell the Menderes story and as you can tell from the cover, it weaves that story in with what's going on in today's Turkey under President Erdogan, who often presents himself as inheriting the political legacy of Adnan Menderes. We talk about that side of things and much else in the interview, but before we get started, let me just remind you that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Being a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including access to an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent extensive Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of books of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who use a special code at the checkout that I send out once you sign up. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including a number of extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members with every new interview, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now, on to our conversation with Jeremy Seal. The book opens dramatically with the 1959 plane crash near Gatwick when Adnan Menderes was on his way to London. 16 passengers died in that crash, but Menderes was among the 10 survivors. I started by asking Jeremy Seal to describe the significance of this episode and why he decided to open the book with it. In um, 1959, February the 17th, 1959, it's a foggy evening. A Turkish Airlines flight coming into Gatwick comes down in the trees short of the airstrip and crashes. And on board, there is a high-level Turkish official delegation coming in for the signature of the independence agreement on Cyprus. And on board is um, not only the prime minister, but a number of ministers and other high-ranking officials. And it's a bad crash. The majority of people are killed outright. A small number of the passengers survive. And among them, is the Prime Minister Adnan Menderes, who walks pretty much unscraped out of the wreckage to be met by a local woman, Margaret Bailey, who is a farmer's wife, who, with her husband, Anthony, have been the first locals on the scene to see what they can do in terms of helping. And they take the survivors back to the farmhouse and effectively um, oversee the helping out uh, the survivors. 
The consequences of all this is that two weeks later, when Adnan Menderes, almost untouched, returns to Turkey, by the time he does that, his base, his support is um, ready to greet him. And they greet him at Ankara Station in huge numbers. And they, they have with them, many of those who've come to greet him, uh, livestock with them, which is all, if you like, an illustration of how deeply revered this man is, at least by some sectors of the Turkish population. This doesn't begin to tell how much opposition there is to him by 1959, because Menderes has been in power for nine years by then. And so there is indeed opposition to him as well as lots of adoring support. And of course, Adnan Menderes had a strikingly similar trajectory to Erdogan. The parallels are very strong. Of course, he was the first uh, democratically elected prime minister in the country. And he also did, he combined a kind of populist Islam with rapid economic development and a certain kind of pro-business stance. And there was also this sense of initial liberalism that he championed after the single party era. And that was then followed by this authoritarian tilt and a certain economic overheating. So the parallels are very striking. And indeed, Erdogan really does place himself in the lineage of Menderes. Just talk about that, uh, those very striking parallels. I, I mean, you're absolutely right. This, this was what struck me, the parallels between the two men, 50 or so years apart. And what struck me as interesting was at the time, I think this story was slightly obscured, at least in the West, because so much was going on in the wider world. I mean, it was trying to compete with the space race, with the um, Cold War, and with so much was going on in the 1950s and the early 60s that I don't think the full import of the Menderes story made any sense until Erdogan comes along 50 years later. And it then becomes clear that what happened to Menderes and what Menderes did serves as a template for um, Erdogan. So it's absolutely essential in terms of its centrality and its significance to the Erdogan story. And that's really why I was drawn to it, because I suddenly realised that by telling the Menderes story, what you're actually doing is making sense of how it's repeating in the Erdogan era. And more than that, as we discovered in 2016, it actually leads to the same endpoint, albeit with a different outcome. So there are these really, really fascinating parallels that I was interested in drawing as I began to tell this story. And rather than, than it being a historical piece that was set in 1950 through to 1961, I wanted effectively two narratives to be running in parallel. The one of the Menderes story and the other of the Erdogan story happening in the recent past and how the two two narratives, how the two strands echo each other the whole way through. And the Democrat Party era was also an era when Turkey really, as you mentioned there, it was the onset of the Cold War and Turkey made its choice of siding with the West, with the US and it really cooperated very closely with Washington in the Menderes era. The US saw Turkey as this vital bullet, really, against uh, international communism. So it sent over financial support, development aid. Turkey joined NATO, of course, sent troops to Korea. Talk about that international political aspect of things, that early Cold War era that really defined things under Menderes. 
Yeah, one of the things I was very um, interested to um, appreciate in my researches was the fact that Turkey's decision to actually come out so um, clearly on the side of the Western liberal democracies in 1945 was driven, I discovered, by the recognition that if they did not do this, they were under enormous threat from the Soviets, who, after the war, one of their first expansionist um, ambitions would have been to have taken Turkey, or at least to threatened Turkey. So Ismet Ünlü, who was the president at the time, I think had reservations about Turkey's readiness for democracy, but felt that they had no choice, the country had no choice but to adopt it, and to adopt it overtly and enthusiastically, if they weren't going to um, put themselves in a position of threat from the Soviets. Which is fascinating in the sense that you suddenly realize the country adopts democracy at a time when at least a number of the uh, important and leading figures in, in the country felt that it wasn't perhaps ready for it. And I think that's reflected in a sense in what happens to Menderes, that you suddenly realize that you're dealing with, with an experiment with democracy starting in 1946, but really from 1950, which I think we generally, which are generally agreed to be the first fully democratic elections, when the country embarks on democracy, when very few people have a practical knowledge of how it should be applied and how it actually works. And perhaps one can trace that to Menderes's downfall, that he has the instincts at the beginning to embrace democracy and to practice it. But within very few years, he seems to discover that he doesn't quite have a thick enough skin to cope with the hustle and bustle, the hurly-burly of kind of democratic life, which is why I think authoritarianism begins to creep in when he realizes that he can't have his own way in a dem democratic system. And it seems to me that exactly the same thing happens with Erdogan. That Erdogan begins too, as it seems, a committed democrat, only to discover that dem democracy doesn't really work for him, and that um, he is also um, drawn naturally towards adopting a more strongman role at the head of the country. And I think, again, it's because he's hypersensitive, like Menderes was hypersensitive. The two men simply cannot cope with the criticisms that are implicit in democratic life. Now, in the popular imagination, Adnan Menderes is situated firmly on one side of the familiar polarization uh, that for many people defines modern Turkish history, basically, between popular grassroots, conservative, religious-oriented politics, and then on the other side, the so-called secular elite based in the urban centers, the military, the bureaucracy. But the reality in Turkey, when you look closer, is is always much murkier, much more complicated. And I think that's the same for Menderes, because he was uh, himself actually one of the elite, as were the leading figures of uh, the Democrat Party, uh, like Jelal Bayar, who became uh, president uh, during this, the time that uh, Menderes was prime minister. So both of them and, and other senior Democrat Party figures, they were members of the CHP, Ataturk's party, for many years before they broke off. Menderes was, of course, the son of a wealthy landowner in Western Turkey. And uh, as far as we know, in his personal life, there's no real indication that he was particularly pious. I think he had quite a secular lifestyle. Indeed, he had quite a philandering life, as you uh, touch on in the book. So um, it's another thing that it would be worth considering. You know, when we look closely, the Menderes era actually does complicate the familiar, rather tired binaries that we've become familiar with in Turkish politics. 
It absolutely does. There's a sense in which Menderes ends up playing a role, which is a consequence of democratic politics. You're right to say that he is a long-serving member of the ruling party, but he also seems to be one of the first people, one of the more overt members of that party to push for reform come 1945. And he obviously is a founder of the Democrat Party, having been expelled from the ruling party. So there is a sort of sense that his expulsion possibly causes him to not only feel a certain resentment at his old political colleagues, but also to drive him towards an embrace, if you like, of the new constituencies that the democratic system is going is going to drive him towards. And it seems to me that that's one of the, the areas that is really interesting in terms of his story. You're right to say that he is not naturally on the side of the pious. He isn't in his own life particularly pious. But his understanding of the democratic system is that, you know, that the, the constituency that the situation has caused him to embrace requires him, because he's serving them now, to actually look after their needs, which are not necessarily lined up with his own beliefs, which is why one of the first things that he does as the leader of the um, new ruling party is to actually arrange for the um, call to prayer formally made in Turkish to actually be made again in the in the sacred Arabic. So it's almost as if he, as a consequence of democratic expediencies, ends up serving his constituency, which is more devout and more pious, because he knows that that's where his vote base now is, for, for better or for worse. And it seems to me that that is what drives, the begins to drive the wedge between the two sides and to articulate more clearly the two camps the two sides. And that process obviously widens as we go through the 50s to the point where the split ends up with intervention. And there was also a material explanation for the um, for the split, a less ideological one that's important to note. In 1946, when, uh, when Mendres broke off from the CHP, that was triggered in part at least by um, this land reform plan that the CHP was pushing through. So Mendres and the Democrat Party uh, struck up an alliance basically with landowners in opposition to this land reform plan. And um, these landowners could basically marshal many of the rural voters to support the Democrat Party. So it was a very uh, material political alliance as well as a, an ideological one that he tapped into. So the ideology, which is what, of course, most people today focus on in the political history of this era, perhaps came second. In many ways, it wasn't ideology that was driving things. And um, at least initially, when uh, when the when the trigger came to, to separate from the CHP, there was this uh, material underpinning as well. Well, I think that... Um... I think it's probably fair to say that um, Menderes was many things, and he was probably a very adept and quite cynical politician. I think you're absolutely right that very little of what he did was, or at least a certain degree of what he did, was not driven by political conviction. It was driven by political convenience. And when we look at him, that's exactly what we see, a man who was effectively more interested in how he would bolster his vote and keep himself in power than what he himself specifically believed. In. I think it's probably the case that when he made calls in terms of his support for a more public role for Islam in the life of the country, he was doing this possibly against his better judgment because he knew that, that it would play very well with, with his base. 
And this may be what we would, one of the distinctions between himself and Erdogan. I think it's a given that Erdogan regards himself as devout and, and comes from a properly Islamic devout background. I don't think that's the case with Menderes. Menderes was feeling his way into what political positions would serve him best in terms of maintaining the uh, constituencies that would keep him in power. There's another really interesting aspect that you mentioned in the book, and that is how the Democrat Party under Menderes, in many ways, and perhaps paradoxically, we might think, encouraged the uh, the cult of Ataturk to develop. And that was actually done in opposition to Ismet Inernu, the head of the CHP at the time. So the Democrats, they replaced photos of Inernu in public places with Ataturk. They put up many more statues of Ataturk. They accelerated the completion of uh, Ataturk's mausoleum in Ankara. And then they transferred uh, his remains there in 1953. And also the, uh, the decision was taken to make Ataturk a presence on the the currency and stamps permanently. So a really fascinating detail how Menderes encouraged that. And again, it may come as a surprise to people who, uh, you know, wedded to the familiar kind of centre-periphery binary. Yeah, well, what you were saying about binarisms is absolutely right. And I think there are two reasons why there was such an espousal of Ataturk, partly because most of the Democrats, and there was no question about this, absolutely admired him and regarded him very highly. And there was also the sense that they were reviving the Ataturk idea because they felt that Inanu had been trying to undermine it in, in his later years. So it was partly aimed at undermining the position of Inanu as much as anything else. I also think it was because they were worried about upsetting the army. And therefore, every time they made a move which might be regarded as in the interests of the devout rural classes, there would tend to be a move to balance that by, for example, in 1953, some months after having presided over the um, 500th anniversary of the fall of Constantinople, which had taken place in four. 1453, which I think we can broadly regard as being something that played well with the Democrat base. They then balanced that by later in the same year presiding over the opening of Ataturk's mausoleum in Ankara. So it seems to me that they are simply as adeptly as possible trying to keep the two sides in some sort of equilibrium without being seen to go too far in one direction as opposed to the other. And of course, though, despite all these nuances, there is a fact that, you know, many in Turkey do see this direct line stretching from the 1950s to today. And that almost uh, creates a reality and narrative in itself. And there are indeed many parallels with the present day. Just going to quote something from the book because we can hear the echoes, let's say, between uh, Erdogan and Menderes. So you say at one point, quote, Mili Rade, national will, played so well at the rallies that Adnan Bey made the persuasive phrase his own. In fact, it implied a drastic reduction of civil freedoms, which not only saw consultative arrangements abandoned, but the democratic process limited to the ballot box, as the British ambassador noted. Turkey, said the ambassador, seemed to suffer from its own brand of semantic confusion over the use of the word democracy. Many people, he observed, found it more or less normal that the political power won at the polls should be used to deny to others the exercise of democratic rights other than those of voting in elections every few years. The international press turned on the man it had lately lionised. Mr. Menderes, the New York Times observed, it apparently develops the conviction that he can plot Turkey's future with the certainty of a blueprint and it follows that whoever opposes him is a traitor. It concluded that the democratic principles espoused after 1946 were nothing but a thin veneer. That little passage there, chillingly familiar territory, 60, 70 years on. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. I mean, it, and, and when I think back to the Menares era, I mean, I, I, again, I have this, this sort of notion that when you um, adopt democracy as your governing system, it's not as if it comes with any kind of briefing notes. Um, you simply have to get on with it. You know that there needs to be free elections every four years. But the sense of how you actually govern between those four years is for you to work out yourselves. And I think that, as I say, there was no kind of proper understanding of the role of an opposition, of an honourable opposition. And it may just be the case that it takes a lot longer than we assume for a proper understanding of consensual democratic politics to take root. I don't think it had done properly in the 1950s. One might suggest that Mr. Erdogan should have a better sense of this after all the years that Turkey has been a democracy. But again, we, we find him at least falling back on that template and using it as, as his own to justify these kind of shortcuts that he's forever making in terms of the way that he's applying leadership. Now, there's a notorious episode during Menderes' rule, the deadly September 1955 riots against minority businesses, particularly Greeks, in Istanbul. And that's still a very murky episode, tragic episode, of course. And it's one about which there are many theories and a lot of unknowns still. And some people allege some form of government involvement in whipping up those riots. So what was the background to that pogrom? And did Menderes have any kind of role at all? Well, certainly the um, press at the time, the international press at the time, seemed to think so. And the feeling was that he was interested in showing his support for the Turkish minority on Cyprus at a time when the future of Cyprus was very unclear. The background to it, of course, was that from, from the early 1950s, the Greek Cypriots had been agitating for enosis, that's to say, union with mainland Greece, which seemed like a threat to the Turkish minority on the island, which was about 100,000 people, sort of a, a fifth of the half a million strong population, which incidentally was a number which was sort of echoed by the number of Rum Greeks in Istanbul. So there were these two minority populations, 100,000 Turkish Muslims on the island of Cyprus and about 100,000 Greek Rums in the Turkish city of Istanbul. And there was a sort of sense that the two were kind of intimately connected in that each represented the counterbalance to the other. And I think that what Menderes wanted to do in 1955 was to show that he was solidly behind the rights of the Turkish minority on the island, even to the extent of implicitly backing the threats that some of the more unpleasant nationalist Istanbul press were making against the Greek rooms of the city, should anything happen to the Turkish Muslims on the island of Cyprus at the hands of Ioka, which was the um, militant wing of the Enosis-seeking majority Greeks on the island. So although it remains unclear, it seems to me that Mendrez had a part in suggesting that there should certainly be some protests in the city in support of the rights of the Turkish Muslims of Cyprus, which by extension naturally had as their target the generally quite prosperous room Greeks of the city. The problem was it seems to have got out of control. There was a lot of burning. There was a lot of carnage and there were a lot of deaths too. Menderes, after it had happened, tried to re 
only take control by claiming the communists were responsible. But it would seem to me there is no doubt at all that he and his officials must have at some point been instrumental in trying to organize and even to allow these pogroms to take place. Because it was noted by any number of witnesses that the police simply stood back and allowed it to allowed it to happen as if they'd been given instructions so to do. Now, Menderes and his Democrat Party were overthrown in a coup on the 27th of May 1960, so after 10 years in power. And the years preceding that coup saw a real mixture of uh, things going on. There was uh, economic slowdown, there was unrest growing in universities, and for years really certain sections of the military were very unhappy with the course of things under the Democrat Party. And this all boiled over in, in 1960 and Menderes was overthrown and he was sent to Yasada, which is a island in the Marmara Sea just outside Istanbul. You went to Yasada, I believe, before it was renovated, is that right? Yeah, I, I, I went a number of years before. Um, a friend offered to take me across there um, in his little boat. So we visited when it was still a ruin and it was very atmospheric. At the time, I didn't have much of a sense of the layout of the island, but I was able to identify the obvious places, like, for example, the gymnasium, which became the, which became the courthouse where the Democrat government MPs and ministers were tried. But only later did it become clear to me where, for example, Menderes had been held in the wards. But it was a very interesting time to uh, visit because obviously the island is uh, much transformed now. It has become, if you like, a kind of memorial to the memory of Menderes and indeed to the iniquities of the, uh, the, the 1960 coup and what took place afterwards. And remarkably, you met one of Menderes's prison guards. He was 22 at the time and he's now in his late 70s. Uh, his name's Mehmet Tashdelen. How did you find him and, and what did he tell you? Well, one of the, I mean, I was very interested in, in the notion of actually track down as, as many people as possible who might have actually experienced the years in question and were closely kind of associated with it. I was given his name by a mutual contact, Mehmet Tashdelen, a very, very helpful, charming man who had been a cadet at Heybeliada, which is one of the, uh, which is the naval school on one of the other Prince's Islands, who, when he graduated in, 19, in the summer of 1960, was in that he would serve as a guard on the nearby island of Yasada, as a guard of the um, imprisoned so-called former and fallen, as the Democrat ministers and deputies were called. So he was transferred to Yasada and discovered that his duty was to serve as the guard on a rota with other guards, looking after Mr. Menderes himself, the prime minister, who always had a one-to-one guard with him in his room. So Tashdelen spent hours on end in the same room as Menderes, a room from which Menderes was not allowed to leave except to go to the toilet. And uh, he wasn't allowed to talk to Menderes, but he nevertheless, because he seemed to have a fascination with what was happening and a very interesting intuitive sense that he was witness to something quite momentous, began to make notes, began to make notes about the way that Menderes behaved, other aspects of what was going on on the island. And he also secretly began to take photographs too, photographs which were forbidden, but he was in the habit of secretly taking photographs. So it was almost as if he set out to document this period of incarceration for these MPs and ministers, and particularly the Prime Minister on Yasada Island. 
And someone else who witnessed those last moments, those last months, was this man, uh, Ismail Shenyus. And he was, I believe, an official photographer of some kind. He was an official photographer, exactly, yeah. He worked for various agencies and he worked for the liaison office, which was the uh, organising office of of the committee, which was how the junta described itself. So he was taking photographs of the prisoners for distribution amongst, for example, the uh, junta-supporting press. And it was only at the end that he was actually brought in to photograph the execution. I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here, but uh, yes, he actually photographed the execution in 1961 and what did you learn from him i mean what did he what did he tell you about this uh, rather chilling episode of his life presumably it was it was really as you say chilling he uh, was dispatched to the island on the last day which was september the 17th 1961 for listeners it's probably worth saying the sentences were passed on the island on September the 15th and the original sentences called for death sentences on 15 members of the regime. The committee then met that same night and decided that the numbers should be reduced to three, which was Menderes and two of his ministers. And this despite lots of resistance and horrified opposition from people like Inonu who felt that the decision to execute anybody would play so badly and would inevitably cause any number of terrible frictions and enmities which would blight Turkey for generations to come. And I think in that sense, it was very astute. So Shenyus, a youngish man, a youngish photographer, is sent to the island on the 17th, where he's required to take photographs of Menderes, who at that point doesn't know that the execution orders have been signed. And Shenyus is put on a boat from Yasada to another island in the Sea of Marmara called Imrala, which incidentally is where Abdul Ujjalan, the Kurdish leader, is still incarcerated. And he reaches the island, and following him in another boat is Menderes, who is put ashore, taken to the prosecutor's office and told that he is to be executed. And it's at that point that the officials tell Shenyus that he is to photograph the hanging. He follows Menderes, who is now in his white execution shawl, out to the gallows, and he's being supported by two officials. He's standing behind them and he's taking photographs. He's assuming that somebody will want him to take photographs from the front so that Menderes can actually be seen, and he proposes to do that. But even as he moves to to, to do that, the various other officials there caution against it and tell him that he should only take photographs of Menderes from the back, which is where they also are. And it's only later that Shenyus realises that these officials, the prison governor, governor, for example, and other army officials, do not want to be implicated by being caught in a photograph showing Menderes, who are after all, is a beloved by a great n- number of people, national leader, showing them in the same photograph of Menderes as his minutes from the gallows. He reaches the gallows, he has a final cigarette, and it is Shenyus's job to actually photograph him. And those photographs appear in the national newspapers of Turkey on the following day. And yes, that was September the 17th, 1961. One detail that I wasn't familiar with was Menderes' attempt to kill himself during his detention. So at one point in jail, he ended up in a coma after taking an overdose. And you describe in the book how his period in in jail before he was executed, he really did struggle 
Another thing I didn't know is how in his trial, the prosecuting authorities really did try and use his rather um, Casanova-ish private life to discredit him. So uh, the opera singer, the soprano Ihan Aydan, testified as a chief witness for the prosecution. And uh, his various affairs were kind of used against him and tried to turn public opinion against him rather unsuccessfully. I think that, that this is a, a consequence of his kind of popularity. Remember that the junta recognised that they'd overthrown a democratically elected leader and that there are a lot of people who were very unhappy about this. So they went out of their way to try and persuade that majority population that their leader was not quite the man that they took him to be. And this meant uh, any number of allegations being raised against Menderes and indeed his regime, which patently were untrue. I mean, it began shortly after the coup in June 1960, when it was alleged that the regime had not only killed lots of the demonstrating students, the students who demonstrated in the final months of the uh, regime's time in power, had not only killed them, but had actually disposed of their bodies by, for example, burying them in holes, or in some cases, even reducing them to um, meal in mincing machines. The press carried these stories, I think, to their shame, despite the fact that there was no proof at all. And it was quite quickly revealed that this was absolute lies. But it was the first instance of the regime trying to find ways of smearing Menderes so that his support would begin to fall away. You then mentioned the Casanova story. There was this sort of presumption, I think, by the regime that if they could only prove that Menderes, who claimed to be pious and supportive of good traditional Muslims, was actually a um, serial philander, which in fact he was, this would also play well with reducing, if you like, the support of his constituencies. It didn't work. It seems that because Ihan Aydan, who was the most high profile of his lovers, effectively rebutted all the accusations against him and reiterated her enduring love for the man. He emerged from that trial even more heroic, I suppose, than, than he'd gone into it. So there was a sense that the authorities were trying to do all they could to actually reduce this man to um, cringing misery. And one of the aspects of this was to play on his natural emotional weaknesses. And I think that the incarceration that he suffered, which was more extreme than almost anybody else on the island, as I say, he wasn't able to leave this room. And this was a man who was, uh, in his normal life, very very energetic and a great walker and loved open spaces. He wasn't able to leave his room and he, he suffered enormously because of this and also because he spent a lot of time in court rebutting the various charges brought against him. And he was, I suppose, inevitably the target of the judges and the prosecution who liked to uh, do all they could to belittle the man. He certainly suffered and to the point where shortly before the night, in fact, that the um, sentences were to be passed, and he must have known that he was he was facing the death sentence, he attempted suicide by using up all the um, sleeping pills which he had managed to collect surreptitiously over the last few months, claiming to have actually swallowed them when he hadn't, and then taking them all en masse on that last night. So that when the rest of the um, defendants were trooped into the court on September the 15th to hear the charges against them. He was not there because he was in a coma. So he almost avoided the death sentence by taking his own life. He didn't because he was um, his stomach was pumped. He revived from the coma on the 16th. And then once he was fit to hang on the 17th, he was hanged. 
Now, you've just spent years researching Menderes's life, following in his footsteps, meeting people who knew him and saw him and spent time with him. I just wonder, throughout the research process, how did your ideas change? Did you learn anything particularly surprising or what kind of journey did you go on, I suppose, as you, uh, as you researched the book? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, one of the decisions I made in the course of writing the book was that there were all sorts of holes in the story in terms of what I had access to. I wasn't sure, for example, whether even if I had managed to, to reach the archives, had they existed, that I would have found out everything which would allow me to tell the story in full. So I made the decision to actually create sections of dialogue which took place between various key figures because I didn't otherwise have access to them. So the question was, I either left them out or I created the dialogue where they were missing. And my feeling was this, that time and again, as I spoke to people about Menderes, it was almost as if they were speaking from the position of one polarized camp or the other. They either viewed him as a hero or they saw him as a uh, villain and a traitor. And it was very rare that I heard anybody saying anything nuanced about Menderes. And I felt that the way I could do this was to try and actually fill that middle ground, to try and present a man in a more nuanced, complicated way, who was a little bit of all these things, who was at once a cynic, partly, but I think he was also sincerely very fond of ordinary people and keen to do all he could for them. He was an authoritarian, he was vindictive, he could be very, very thin-skinned, but he was also incredibly courteous. And this is something that Tash Delen, the um, young guard, said about him, that he was really courteous to all, even the most lowly guards. So he was a complicated man for all sorts of reasons. He was obviously very charismatic and very good at playing crowds, but he was also shy and he didn't have many particularly close friends. And I wanted to get across a sense of how it always is with these figures, that what you need to do is to, by breaking down somebody who over the years has turned into a symbol, either of one thing or of another and represent him in all his glorious complication, if you like. Now, zooming out a bit, thinking a bit more generally, you've written many books and a lot of travel writing, journalism on Turkey over the years. And obviously, you've seen huge changes over almost 40 years. How often do you get back? And could you just reflect on the, the changes that you've seen here since the early 1980s? Yeah, I mean, I get back a lot with him. I um, One of the things I do these days is I lead cultural tours on Goulettes along the kind of Aegean and Mediterranean coasts, which I love doing, which is effectively um, a way of getting back to the wonderful classical sites all along those coasts. I still do some travel writing. I intend to kind of come back and write other books as and when, as and when I can. And over the years, one of the things I have noticed is that a phrase that I used to hear a lot is no longer there. And this seemed to be to do with different attitudes towards what it's acceptable to say and what it's unacceptable to say. People used to say in conversations, hair cares their best, everybody is free, everybody's free to say whatever they like. I don't hear that anymore. And I get from a lot of friends that one feels the need to be careful, to be more careful now about what one says, either in public or indeed in print. And a consequence of that, of course, is that there are, there are a huge number of people, writers especially, jailed for um, expressing their views. And it seems to me a sadness that, that this is where we're at, that those old freedoms no longer seem to be quite so comfortable in terms of how they, uh, in terms of how they can talk to each other and communicate with each other and continue to engage with each other. And as the engagement 
breaks down. I wonder whether the two positions are calcifying to a point where they're unable anymore to kind of reach out to each other and find common ground. That's what worries me. And if that sounds like a really depressing note to reach, I also think it continues to be a fabulous country and with wonderful, fascinating stories to tell and to discover. As to whether politics, given the difficulties in terms of exploring it, is something that I'm going to continue to to look at, I just don't know. Yeah, related to that sort of darkening atmosphere, I suppose, I saw that you gave interviews to uh, a number of Turkish media outlets after publishing previous books. But now we're really in a different era. And I just wonder if anybody from a Turkish media outlet has called you to talk about this one, because they, they really should do. I mean, this is an English language biography of Adnan Menderes. You know, yeah. it should get huge interest in Turkey. But given the current atmosphere, I wonder, has anybody got in contact? They haven't. They haven't got in contact at all. I mean, I think what's interesting about this book, and which um, causes me a certain amount of sleeplessness, is that um, it sort of does two things. I mean, any sort of broadly speaking, impartial or even sort of positive uh, treatment of Menderes is going to play well with the governing party. But that said, there's also lots of implicit criticism and also overt criticism of Erdogan's party in the book. So it sort of does two things, doesn't it? And it's quite hard to know how it will be received in official circles in Turkey. I just don't know. What I have already had is is a lot of feedback from people who, um, particularly in the West, who like the story because they think it throws lots of light on something they found very complicated. So I think using Menderes as a way to explain modern Turkish politics is really useful for a wider Western audience. What I've also had is people from both sides of the political divide, and this is really interesting, in Turkey, coming back to me and criticising me. On the one hand, people who um, are supporters of Menderes saying that I've been too hard on him, and people who are opponents of Menderes saying that I've been too soft on him. So it's a really interesting way of exploring the fact that I think we are in a position where both sides are refusing to acknowledge that there is this kind of central ground where they could meet, which is what this book is trying to do, and still insisting on looking at this story from their own polarised position. And that to me is a sadness, because the only way that there can be any engagement across the divide is by trying to find common ground. That was Jeremy Seal. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 137. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Arriving in your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Gezdim dolaştım, anladım ki ne? <gülüyor>